Wellness Force Radio, Episode 2. And in the health and wellness industry, you know, I think you have an amazing level of, of ways to help motivate people where you can know all the sort of very human excuses we give for not exercising, but you can also help people move beyond that and be like, look, either going to get healthier or you're not. Welcome to Wellness Force Radio, where you will hear inspiring and passionate experts in the areas of wellness technology and behavior change. Your host, Josh Trent, will empower you with the knowledge and tools you need to take the very best actions in transforming your mindset, your body, and ultimately your life. Now, here's your host. Welcome back to Wellness Force Radio. I am your host, Josh Trent. And every week, we bring you inspiring and passionate experts in the areas of technology, health, and wellness to empower you with the knowledge and tools on how to take the best actions in transforming your mindset, your body, and ultimately your life. Today, I am extremely excited to have John C. Havens on the show. John is a contributing writer for Mashable, The Guardian, and Slate, and he's the author of Hacking Happiness, Why Your Personal Data Counts, and How Tracking It Can Change the World. His new book, Genuine Authentic Happiness in an Age of Artificial Intelligence comes out from Tarsha Penguin next year. John is also a consultant and keynote speaker at places like South by Southwest and TEDx. And he's also a former Broadway TV film actor, consultant, activist, and father. Welcome to the show, John. We're really excited to learn from you. Thanks for having me on, Josh. One of the things I always wonder about when I read someone's book cover to cover, as we were talking about in the in the pre-show, is... You know, what is your story behind why you contribute and why you create? I know that you're a famous author with Hacking Happiness, talks about data and actually using that data to improve the quality of your life. But what is your story, John? Kind of take us on the road leading up to the first moment as to why you went down this road towards being an author and an entrepreneur. Well, first off, thanks for reading the book uh, at all. <laughs> you've, uh, like I said in the pre-show, you made my day. I love the idea that I could be a famous author. That's, that's hugely helpful. For me, if someone reads the work like you did, it's such a compliment. So I really appreciate it. My road to being an author, uh, same with being an actor and, and a writer, is I love observing human behavior. And that's something I think started as a kid maybe because I was just sort of a moody type of kid anyway, and then had a pretty seminal time of being bullied. And while that's unfortunate, was unfortunate at the time, it did get me to really understand how you can help other people by recognizing their suffering. And then at the same time, you also help yourself. Where uh, altruism is a real powerful, the, the science of altruism and kindness one of the things I find to be most exciting about it is actually how much it helps the person giving the kindness as well as the people receiving. More often than not, we, we think about the people when you volunteer who you may be helping, which is great. But um, that journey of, of studying human behavior and especially trying to think of how to administer kindness is then where I got into storytelling and writing where people could sort of share their vision based on their own observations of the human, uh, human condition. Yeah, that, that really resonates with me. One of the things I was reading a few days back was about your dad. You know, I, I know that he was a psychiatrist and I'm drawn. I, I, I'd like to know how his profession, um, you know, impacted your life or, or his presence shaped the work that you do now. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. My dad was a psychiatrist in the uh, 70s and 80s and, and 90s. And I'm just 
listening on audiobook to this great book called Shrinks, if you get a chance or your listeners get a chance to read it or listen to it, on the history of psychiatry. And it turns out that the word shrink actually became quite popularized around the time my dad was finishing medical school. So I grew up in an era where psychiatrists, uh, even more than they may be today, and this includes therapists, et cetera, uh, were looked at not just with scrutiny but with real fear. You know, head shrinker, these people seemed foreign and strange, and there's a lot of shame. There was, and I think there still is, uh, associated with going to a psychiatrist or a therapist, even though now there's less of a stigma than there was growing up. So there's a lot of fascination I have to my dad's work in the sense of I saw him every night, you know, obviously after work, but he couldn't ever talk about what he did. But I still knew from his demeanor and from some of the stories that he that he did share with us, they were very few and far between, the level of pain that people uh, that he was dealing with that he was able to help. And I really do think, it did think and still do that my dad is a hero. And I think it's the same for anybody therapeutically or, or psychiatrically or psychologist who you can really sit with someone toe to toe and listen attentively to them for an hour at a time. I think of myself, you know, I love having the conversation with you right now, but my guess is when we're done, I tend to be a little drained. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> my, uh, my dad would do that eight hours a day or, or more. He was very invested in his patients. Beyond that, I think there's a, a real mystery with psychiatry and exploring aspects of mentality that a lot of people don't think about and that the quantified self movement, one of the reasons I know you're very passionate about it, SMI, is it really gives a person permission to take a measure of their own life. I didn't know until I listened to this book, Shrinks, literally two weeks ago, I was running, listening to this audiobook, and I may get this wrong, but the definition of psychiatry when it was being separated from the idea of neurology, the study, the physical, the study of the physical mind is the uh, study of the soul. I probably have that definition wrong, and, and please read the book. But I thought the science of the soul, whatever the phrase is, I thought it fascinating that psychiatry um, really only in the past decade or two is starting to get the sort of respect it deserves as a real science. But, st but still the name comes from this idea of studying things that um, aspects of which we, we sort of can't ever really know. And that mystery as I wrote in the book, my dad had a phrase that he said a lot near the end of his life, which I've grown to be accustomed to mystery or I've become comfortable with mystery. And that's something I'm really starting to fully kind of understand what he meant, I think, even just now. Mm, that is so powerful, man. It being almost like being comfortable in the uncomfortable, being being okay in the unknowing. I completely resonate with that. Transitioning from the powerful work that your dad did, I, you know, I know there was a piece in your book, Hacking Happiness, where you talked about positive psychology at work. And one of the things that you interviewed, I believe, Maurice Schott. She was a concept developer at the Happiness Lab at WAG Society in Amsterdam. And, she, and you quoted her as saying, for us Europeans, this idea of having food manage your moods and needs was not something that we recognize. But it makes perfect sense as you relate this with the American dream, where you're expected to work hard in order to become successful. There is no room for emotions. Can you talk a little bit by, by you know, how you interpreted her quote there by taking out the emotions and the American dream, you know, constantly looking for more and more and more as far as uh, possessions and kind of contrast um, that conversation we had with your dad? Yeah, and thank you for, for pointing that out. Uh, she was a great interview. And if uh, the, the WOG Society is doing some really interesting stuff, 
I think in America, it's very easy to get caught up in the American paradigm of being an American, right? Because <laughs> we watch Fox or we watch CNN or we talk politics. And, and unless you've traveled outside of America or you have friends who don't live here, um, and this is not to be pejorative. It makes sense. It's a, it's a pretty big country, has a lot of influence around the world. But when you start to talk to people, especially about happiness or well-being or positive psychology, you, you truly need to look at places like Australia, where a lot of the leading work in positive psychology has been done for almost a decade. You certainly have to look in places like Copenhagen, where they have some of the leading results year after year being the happiest one of the happiest cities on earth. And it doesn't mean that people in Copenhagen walk around, you know, like with unicorns on their shirts and high-fiving. It <laughs> means they are, they are addressing metrics and issues uh, with regards to well-being that are measurable and quantifiable. One of the most brilliant things about Copenhagen that they decided to do was to actually find where there was the most misery and then decide how to eradicate that misery. So the happiness is actually the polar opposite of where they've been able to eradicate um, a lack of well-being, which I think is brilliant. So I think in America, um, I don't think it's just a fact, uh, the GDP mindset that was created in the 30s after Simon Kuznets invented what he never intended to be a measure of well-being but became the gross domestic product, which people think is a state of measuring welfare or happiness. He himself said it shouldn't become a fetishism for numbers. The, the idea of growth, which is so pivotal to uh, the GDP, is something that has been adopted with the American dream of sort of you should be able to go from nothing to everything. And growth is not just, hey, I'm making $100,000 and my family's needs are met. Mm-hmm. It, is, it is always, I'm a billionaire, I'm a trillionaire, I'm Elon Musk. The, ce- the celebrities of, of business are as, as much or more so lauded than the... Uh, Hollywood ones. And so anyway, long answer except to say that the the American dream coupled with GDP means that growth at all costs is what we tend to pursue uh, as Americans. And sadly, our resources, meaning our our humanity, we're finite in nature. We can't do more, say, than machines in certain areas. Um, that's, That's a big difference from a lot of European and other countries. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I, I believe I, I heard you quoted on this in an interview, it was the prime minister of Bhutan. And, and he talked about needing an economy that will serve humanity, prevent the imminent reversal of civilization and flourish within the natural bounds of our planet while ensuing the sustainable, equitable and meaningful use of precious resources. So they have they have something called gross national happiness. Can, can you touch on that a bit? Sure. Gross national happiness was actually inspired by Robert Kennedy in a speech that he gave in, uh, I think it was 1972. It's in the book, uh, University of Kansas, maybe. Anyway, um, he pointed out, and this was not too long after now the GDP, probably about a decade or two, had been in place. He made a poignant observation about what the GDP was measuring and what it didn't. And it wasn't intended, uh, I believe, to be just sort of an artistic sense of you know, uh, measuring people's happiness in terms of mood. He said things like the GDP measures crime and violence, but it doesn't measure education and art. And what uh, the, the prime minister Bhutan echoed, and, and he's credited with coming up with this somewhat fanciful or not really joking, but uh, term initially gross national happiness was what are the other metrics that should be measured to get a real sense of individuals and citizens having well-being. 
So financial, no one's going to say that money is not a part of the picture or the resources, kind of Maslow's hierarchy of well-being. You have to have food and shelter, etc. But if someone was saying, well, that's the only thing about a person's life that has, uh, gives them meaning or well-being, most people would say, well, that doesn't make sense. You have to have a good education. You have to have the intrinsic well-being brought about by family. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that stuff we've measured for years, it's just not the only primary measure of value that the world has held since the 30s, which is the GDP. Yeah, and, and in that time, I mean, that was a great model because that was serving, right? GDP in that time frame was great because it was needed. But now it's 2015. People are oversaturated with information. They have more than enough to do every day. Calendars are bursting with events. Now we're actually looking at removing things, taking out things as far as quote, quote, productivity and just having downtime in our lives. And I'd like to transition to something I saw on your site uh, yesterday and it was values by design. And, and I'm, you know, I'm so inspired slash curious about this because I, first of all, man, I love the title. I, I think it's an amazing title. It's a clear call to action. What, what is your ultimate mission with values by design? Well, thanks again. You're totally giving me a, a big head today, which is great. <laughs> There's a, a term in uh, the privacy or personal data world or, or really the kind of the large, larger manufacturing world in general, which is called privacy by design. And that's really, it was coined by a woman uh, in, I think in Toronto, I know Canada. And at the time she was a commissioner, I forget which part of the government she worked in. But she helped create and foster and evangelize this idea of privacy by design, which is actually a technological infrastructure about the sharing of data. So in the old days, when I saved a file about myself that was for whatever reason important to me, you know, a, a document that held intellectual property, and then I wanted to give it to Josh, right? I'm handing it to you. I'd save it on a floppy disk or whatever and hand it to you. So that exchange was a trusted exchange of digital information. Um, privacy by design is a similar idea where it's one server to one server, what's called P2P or peer-to-peer sharing. Uh, What I've been fighting for for the past number of years is that people have control of their data. And the word privacy is very confusing, I think, because it has to do with a preference. Someone wants to share certain data. Someone doesn't want to share certain data. That's their preferences. I'm not interested in mandating preferences. I am interested in creating a technological infrastructure that allows both parties to do what they want with their data. That means control of their data, which right now universally around the world people do not have. End of story, hard stop. And once there's privacy by design, once through things like personal clouds, and I can get more geeky if it's helpful, but (laughs) once just conceptually, if someone's able to say as they walk around in the world, which now includes the Internet of Things, if you were able to set up basically who and what types of organizations you wanted to release different pieces of data to when and and for how long, et cetera, that's kind of basic demographical information and kind of basic sort of sharing, kind of like the same logic of when you go online throughout the day, who do you give what information to, what passwords, et cetera. But now the, the Internet of Things and manufacturing is becoming so nuanced with things like 3D printing. You could have printing runs of a product where you can make four of something that are so incredibly personalized to Josh or John. They really can reflect a deeper sense of a person than just the basic demographics of, of digital data that exists now. And in a sense, then, this becomes what I call values by design. Now, values could be something like religion or faith. So, for instance, 
this is a maybe not the best example, but if you couldn't eat certain foods because of your religious practices, then you wouldn't get advertised, you know, like by boar's head ham, for instance, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Then on a more, I guess, nuanced level, things like self-driving cars, there's a lot of talk right now about ethics and AI, which is a lot of what my new book is about. And the logic here is, you know, a Google self-driving car, if it's going towards a narrow tunnel, and this is a famous philosophical debate uh, question, but the, the car is going to a, a tunnel and a small child runs in front of your car, and the only thing that the car can do is either swerve and kill the driver or swerve and kill the child, what should the car be designed to do? Huh. And, and that, from a values-based standpoint or an ethics, sometimes people call it morals, but I tend to call it ethics or values. Um, that decision right now for all products, this is a big thing to consider, is those decisions are being made by the manufacturer. So Google, whether it be uh, an ethicist at Google or a philosopher at Google, a lot of times it's developers, are making decisions based on whatever decisions they are making decisions on, probably largely manufacturing. And they could be, you know, by and large, they're very smart. It's Google. But that doesn't mean they're yours. And there's a ton of legal precedents being created right now because literally all law so far has been written by and for humans. Now, vehicles are a great first example, and especially because corporations are getting uh, personhood status from the federal government. Now, these vehicles that are making decisions have massive legal ramifications. And my belief and my hope, uh, my eventual hope, as you you asked by this values by design idea, are two things. One, um, people as individuals will start asking, well, what are my values? And in the book and online, uh, I created a very simple survey you can do with pen and paper. It's supposed to be not terribly technological on purpose so that a person has to really have agency in the process. But the logic is once you figure out you know, a list of 10 values that, are, that were created, the list by a famous psychologist and all that, the, the point is you say, okay, I guess I do believe in these, these values and you're sort of codifying them. Then in one sense, you can start to codify them in such a way that the machines that we already are so intimately involved with and will be even more so as we go into the Internet of Things, we essentially have a sort of code of our ethics or values that is now translatable to the machines who are making values-based decisions for us. That's awesome. And I'm almost feeling something like a, like a matrix per se, where we have this AI that's doing things for humans of service, but there is this fine line that exists between morality and service and how these machines and how AI is actually going to serve humanity. Because let's face it, I mean, it, it has the potential to replace human to human connection and a, a, amazing way that I can talk about this is the the advent of the growth in social media. So look at how many times, I mean, the average American checks their phone 150 times a day for social media. Is, is that right? I mean, that's kind of your alley. If not more. Yeah, that's, that's, that sounds accurate. If not more. So now we have this, we're so dependent on technology and in this double-edged sword, we think to ourselves as, as you know, people that, that are essentially tribe, we're wired to have human to human connection. So these technological devices, whether it's a Fitbit to improve our health or the, the social media to connect us to people in places we've never been able to before, these have to be 
regarded in a moral compass as well. And that's something that I think is a great transition to talk about the health aspect of technology. When we look at the morality of health and how data is being collected, uh, for example, Under Armour just spent $500 million. They purchased Endomodo and MapMyFitness. So now I think they have 120 million avatars of user data. This data is being sold behind these uh, participants backs essentially and data is very powerful it talks you know to companies marketing efforts it gives under armor the ability to sell people shoes at the right time based on the mileage they run what are the ways that you see data john what are the ways that you see this data being used not necessarily for the growth and the positivity of these participants what are the negative aspects of how this data is being used behind the scenes well sadly there's a, a lot of them the internet economy, as we set it up, a lot of what people forget about is the presence of third parties, uh, data brokers, where the data, where the money can be made a lot of times is by selling data sets to these data brokers who then broker it to advertisers or brands. Now, that doesn't mean that all data brokers are, are all evil. You know, the, there's Axiom and there's, there's a number of companies that are so large, they have so many different divisions. It doesn't make sense in one sense to just demonize them across the board. Also, they're smart in the sense that for years they take publicly available information, aggregate it, and then put it into lists that sort of make sense to advertisers based on what they want to sell. So it may be, you know, I'm sure that for years uh, before Quantified Self, there's been lists of women of a certain age group who are into yoga or certain types of health uh, uh, demographics. And those lists now are certainly going to be helpful to Under Armour, et cetera. The problem for me with data brokers is the disconnect with the fact that those third-party brokers, A, have no direct relationship with the people they're tracking. B, there's no way for the individual to even know that they're on the list or get a copy of that data. So we're at a time right now with um, data brokers, much like where we were about 30 years ago with credit cards. There was a time where you could not get a copy of your credit rating uh, until like Experian and those services came around. So what that meant is the history of credit cards, and I think I talk about this in, in Hacking Happiness, started with a bunch of retailers, I think it was, sort of coming up with who they wanted to give credit to. It's much kind of the logic of how banks or American Express, you know, first decided, is this person credit worthy? And the first decisions were made by a bunch of, in general, you know, kind of middle-aged or older white guys. And some of the decisions... <laughs> Some of the decisions back in the 50s and 60s, it's not a, a lovely history. It's we won't, we won't give credit to black families or gay families. And, and so that means the moral question is, is, is huge. So where we are right now is we're in the same era, but with our data that's much more widespread and prevalent. And certainly there's so much more information generated about us and by us than, than even uh, what our credit card companies held 30 years ago. So... The fact that we have all this data that's not available to us, especially in the health industry, first of all, is there's also a question of clarity. So outside of like, oh, these big evil data brokers are, are holding my data, one thing with, with that, by the way, is I often wonder when you hear about like, don't slow down innovation by trying to have people have better access to their data. I think it's a $2.3 billion annual industry, data brokers, and they're a third party. And the innovation to me, I seem to think, would be Google or Facebook saying, you know what, we don't really need the, <laughs> these data brokers anymore because we allow direct interaction 
between people and their data. We've created the frameworks or the social networks or the search. Um, so I'm, I'm always fascinated there aren't more conversations around that, whereas um, the third parties, to me, seem it's a wonderful place to innovate. And, and frankly, I don't care if they go away. I don't care about the lost jobs, <laughs> the data yeah. broker industry. But in terms of the other things that people should be worried about, there's a question of sustainability of human data. We talked before about GDP and GNH, gross national happiness. There's a finite aspect to the environment that Al Gore first talked about with an inconvenient truth, right? We can't destroy the, the world's resources and replenish them at the same unless we can replenish them at the same rate, and that just means we're we're done, right? The world is sadly we can't get certain things back. Mm -hmm. The same is true with human data. What that means is by the time we can get hundreds of sensors that we can swallow in our bodies recorded at all times, both with video cameras and audio, and there's the Internet of Things where all of our products measure our lives, it's probably going to be two or three years, maybe not even that long, where in one sense, Josh and John, and especially with companies like Palantir or other companies that you know do big data analytics for, for like the NSA, there's not a whole lot of mystery to a lot of people's lives. We're sort of mired, uh, as it were, in ritual. Mm. And, and so when predictive algorithms get to the point where they know us better than we do or can predict what we'll do before we do, then in one sense, people have to realize it may be three years before all of this aggressive data monitoring uh, where we're not really involved in one sense will become kind of shells of useless information to people. If we don't control our own data, but meaning being in the middle of the relationship between us and the brands or uh, organizations or individuals that we want to have a direct peer-to-peer data relationship with, the, the way that things are moving along now, the main reason people need you in the mix is to buy something at the beginning of the process, buy the Fitbit, right? Use the app, the Map My Walk app. Um, and do you get value? Sure, of course you get value. But the point is, is, is the value an equal exchange? No, not in any stretch of the imagination. It may not be just with that one app, but by the time there's hundreds of uh, organizations mapping what you do every day, the aggregate picture, none of which you have insights into, besides maybe the data from each of the apps separately, they don't aggregate together for you unless you have some kind of personal data cloud, like I mentioned. Then that means within a few years, like I, uh, I said, really it's a race to the bottom and commoditizing of kind of human data in general if organizations who are mining this data don't start to realize we have to let people be a part of this mix so that we can maintain a relationship with them where they'll be useful sure. <laughs> or else we're going to you know, track them to the point where they're not part of the mix anymore and they certainly won't be valuable as a customer at that point. And, and it's an interesting point you make too, because the way this will impact how this wearable technology and how this data will impact the wellness industry in general is extremely growing at a, at a rate that I don't think anyone has ever seen. Fitbit came out in 2007. In the first years, growth was kind of slow. But I have seen, and I don't know if you can comment on this, in the past couple of years, the amount of data that is being collected, not only by Fitbit or Jawbone or, any, or Misfit or any of these other companies, but the amount of data that's being used 
use to paint a picture of how someone walks, how someone lives, what kinds of things they do, where they go for coffee. We're talking about something where it's almost like someone peering over your shoulder 24-7. Now, for people who are trying to improve their lives by using their own data, this is an amazing mirror of mindfulness. If you know where your steps are, if you know where your heart rate is, if you know how many calories you're tracking, if you're using apps like uh, time-saving apps for productivity, these are all great things. So I want to contrast the double-edged sword here because on one side, we have these companies, these data brokers that are using this data to market and to sell and possibly to do other things that we may not even be aware of. But on the other side, we have the end user, you know, Jane Smith, she's 42, she has two kids and she's using this data for good. What do you think, John, in the next three to five years, this data from Fitbits and wearable tech will do to shape personal health? Well, the double-edged sword, sadly, the edge doesn't go away in one sense. But let me take your point. Uh, agree with one thing uh, to a huge degree, as you know from my book, which is if someone has a tool that lets them take a measure of their life, and a lot of people think quantified self, I'm going to quantify everything. If I try to quantify happiness, it's going to go away. And I remind <laughs> people, look, you quantify your bank book every single day. You know exactly how much you're worth. It's very rare that you ask someone how much money is in the bank and they can't tell you. Say, great. Can you tell me the last three times you were grateful? And people are like, um, uh, can you tell me anything about how you know to improve your well-being? No granola. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so so I, I remind them the measurement, what you measured for how long is finite, right? To, to do a gratitude journal, you, you can do it for the rest of your life. I'd recommend that. You don't have to. So if it's a Fitbit, if it's a wearable, and it helps someone take control of an aspect of their health of their, or their life or improve it, I want to be clear. I am so encouraging of that. I, I applaud their efforts. I know for myself, just in the past nine months, I've lost about 38 pounds. Whoop, whoop. That came from the tracking my values thing uh, that I created. And then also a pedometer, frankly. I, I still use Matt My Fitness, but the wearable that I had for a while, mainly the thing I used was I knew I had to get 10,000 steps. So I want to be clear it's life changing you know, good uh, quantifiable self technology. The reason I'll go back to the data issue though, unless you're using a pedometer that's just literally a kind of an old school pedometer that counts your steps versus having data that goes to a cloud somewhere, how the data is filtered back to you in just the app, it may be very clear. You've you know run this many laps or what have you. But uh, I point this out with my dad and I'll use that analogy. When you think of sitting with a therapist or you think of sitting with a wearable, as it were, the information you're getting, um, there's an interloper where you have an agency about what they're, they're doing. You've turned on the app with a therapist. You're talking to someone, and that implied relationship is, I trust you enough to share this inf- information about my life. Sadly, because the data is also shared in the, the, the apps, etc., and it is universally being used to target us largely for ads, etc. It doesn't mean that being targeted is bad, by the way. I should point that out. It means that when you think about the hundreds of organizations that each have different ways of tracking you, they don't share information about you with each other, and they don't share the information, uh, at least not all of the insights about the information with you. Now, some of them may, but the majority of them don't. So my dad had a, had a word for this, asked as a psychiatric industry, which is when there are multiple voices that you're pretty sure may be talking about you that you sort of hear but sort of don't, that's schizophrenia. 
and I, I use that in every actual sense of the word, meaning a person can use an app and get healthier physically, but because the data is being sold about them in ways that they don't know and can't access, eventually that will come back to them. Maybe it's in their Facebook feed. Maybe it's something relates to their, their lives and depression, and they get an ad for depression, and they're wondering how that happened. And there's not an agency. That's, again, why the control is so important. And I want to be clear. There's active and passive data, which I know you know as a quantified selfie. Passive data means things like pedometer data, where when you run, you don't have to sit there and click every time you run. It happens automatically. Heart rate data, same thing. Active data, however, means that you have to input things like a, a mood and a, and a gratitude journal where you're writing it into a journal. The combination of those two things is what I think is most powerful and what's necessary. And you can't have active control uh, or insights or improvements in your life without access and control of your data. This is something that I was talking to a developer about yesterday. I'm, I'm in the process of building an application that's open source to work with clients. And it has active and passive components because we know that the barriers to entry for anyone, if you make data passive, it's easy. They just put on a wearable or a pedometer and it tracks and it uploads to the cloud and it's and it's there. The, the disconnect that I'm having, and, and possibly you can shed some light on this for me or anyone else that's looking into having their own data privatized, is... Do you feel that there's technology out there for a trainer or a coach or a business owner to have 20 members data, their steps, their heart rate, everything they're doing outside the club merge with their inside the club data? So essentially having a private cloud that the data is shared from the participant to the gym owner or to the trainer, and you'll get to see everything that that client is doing. And then it'll engage this third party conversation where the data is now the disciplinarian and the coach or the trainer isn't necessarily doing the whipping of the horse. It's something where the client is coming, the client knows where the data is, the trainer knows where the data is, and it's in this private space where it's not being shared. No one's marketing to them, and it's a trusted interaction between those two people. Do you feel like that's something that clubs and gyms and trainers will be using in the future? Oh, by all means, and I, uh, I applaud the idea. Uh, I forget the name of the app. I'm sure you probably know it, but there's been different motivational health and wellness apps or, or companies like that. One that I thought was kind of fun was you put in a certain amount of money or you said like 20 bucks. If I don't go to the gym three times today, I will pay 20 bucks. And if you went to the gym only twice, then you paid like $6 and whatever because it was a, a third of, of that. And that as a motivator, not that money should be the motivator to get stuff done, but the point is, is that it was an accountability where, as you know, also from reading my book, I think that I came up with the term, I don't know if it's useful, but accountability-based influence or ABI, where saying you're going to do something versus doing something are two different things. And in the health and wellness industry, you know, I think you have an amazing level of, of ways to help motivate people where you can know all the sort of very human excuses we give for not exercising, but you can also help people move beyond that and be like, look, either going to get healthier or you're not. It's kind of pretty binary. <laughs> yeah. The so, truth is in the data, right? The numbers don't lie. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you have a trusted community, like even in my little gym near my house, cause I've been going so often to get in shape this past uh, year. Uh, I love the fact that there's five or six guys, many of them who are huge. I mean, just really fit. One of them is a professional bodybuilder who they'll come in. They'll be like, yo, John, you lost some weight, man. You're looking great. <laughs> and, and that meant the world to me that these guys, you know, even noticed and uh, anyway, the, the, the program sounds certainly promising what you're talking about. 
Awesome. Yeah, and maybe that's something that, that we'll see. I know there's a, there's a company called Technogym from Italy and they have my wellness cloud. And I was at the Ursa convention this year. They are, they're starting to do this, but again, they're, they're making it their own ecosystem and then monetizing that. So I don't think there's anything wrong with monetizing it, but the participants aren't able to really get their own data and pull it and put it on a spreadsheet or, you know, put it into tick track or put it into some kind of white labeled system for themselves. And I think we're going to see more and more the the ecosystem is really where the battle is. Apple's trying to have their own ecosystem for data. They have done research kit, which is promising. But health kit, no one knows exactly what they're going to share and what they're not going to share. Fitbit only offers 75% of export on their data. You can't get the heart rate. Same with Jawbone. So we're seeing people only give as much data as they really, really need to. But essentially, this is human data. And if your body's creating a piece of data, you have the right to access that data whenever you want and save your own data. Can you talk a little bit about that point? Yeah. I mean, the reason I'm so evangelistic about these issues is that that's my belief. I share the belief that you just said that the data that I create is my own and I should have rights to it um, or, or control over it, not just rights. The only way that I think that's really going to happen is if individuals set up a personal cloud, which is their nucleus, as it were, their only entry point or exit point of their data. So while I applaud, and again, I think it's fine to experiment, you know, this idea that the the gym uh, group in Italy you're talking about, I agree with you. If you don't have access to all that data and you can't get insights to it, then that means, uh, in my opinion, there's that's a huge flaw. I also think what's what a lot of people are missing is there's a difference between if, if that, that company says, well, we're taking your data and all these other people's data, and we're not just going to give stuff back to you because other people's privacy um, and conditions are mixed in with that, or we've created this algorithm to help create value on top of your data, then that to me is like, well, then that's a different, that's a tiered pricing system that someone can then say, hey, at Josh, at any point you want your data, here's all your data, all the insights you know, it's easily in Excel or whatever spreadsheet format. It's yours. Take it, you know, whatever. <clears throat> that to me should be a given. That's table stakes. Yeah. Otherwise, the assumption is, and, and typically just the fact is, the reason then they're holding that data is to create intellectual property for themselves that mainly these days can be monetized by selling it, which is, that's a business model. Moving forward, though, um, the reason I brought up or I was stressing the idea of the belief is that right now, even just last week, I'm, I'm trying to get some notes together for an article, maybe for Mashable. You probably heard about how um, the John Deere tractor company and GM are fighting to have uh, rights of ownership of their vehicles changed to essentially where when you pay to now buy a John Deere tractor, you're essentially um, leasing it, not in the sense of how we lease vehicles now, but their logic is the computer-based uh, IP, intellectual property, in the John Deere tractor is so advanced that to own it, meaning because a lot of people are trying to hack it and make the, the software work better for their farm, they're saying that that's a violation of their rights. And what I'm, I tell people is, I'm like, well, don't forget that if that precedent continues and John Deere the tractor company says the algorithms of our product, we own them then that's completely transferable to the wearable industry, let alone transhumanism in general. If, if that means that Fitbit, the data they have on you, you could be like, well, can I have insights to this data? And they will maybe say, based on this legal precedent, I don't give a crap what your feelings are. 
I don't care what you think your rights are. I've won this court case in federal court, at least in the states, that says copyright and, and losses that the data that you've generated using the Fitbit is ours. You and they, it's up to them to decide whether there's access or not. That to me doesn't work. That doesn't work at all. Not just because I'm a privacy advocate, and again, the word privacy to me is irritating. I'm I'm an advocate of control and innovation. A lot of people think that my viewpoints are actually luddite in the sense of, well, I'm trying to hinder innovation, and my I couldn't that's far couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, like in the John Deere case, um, the guy that got a lot of he wrote a, an article in Wired about the sort of ability to hack things that we own in that sense too. They can make the, the tractors better. Um, I'm very much with him, which is the logic of we, if we have access to our data and we control our data then the innovation that we get to continue to innovate ourselves as we see fit while the organizations who have a relationship with us try to bring us value. Without the control of our data, then there's no reason for the, um, the brands to have any relationship to, it, to us except to, to sell us stuff. And if it's so personalized that they can do it by knowing our actions, then again, there's no agency, there's no real relationship. Yeah. And I, I just want to take a second here to, you know, something came up for me right now listening to you. I just want to honor you for and acknowledge you for the passion and service you have to educate people on, on technology and wellness alike, because really what you're doing is you're spreading awareness. And this is something where I, I really just want to take a second here to thank you for that. So thank you, John. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate it. Many days I feel like I'm just you know, at my house being raging against the world. <laughs> so <laughs> some, someone as, as smart as you and who's, who's doing so much good yourself, that, that means a great deal. So thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. I, just to, to kind of close up the interview today, I, I want to go through some quick rapid fire questions. And just the first thing that comes to your mind here, just throw it out there. I think this will be good insight for people who are aspiring entrepreneurs that might be listening or or even people that are technologically minded. I think it might be be great to shed some in, insight on your answers here. So, so the first one is, it, you know, what one event in your life would you say was your biggest lesson? I think one big lesson for me is to learn how to savor any conversation with any individual person. And it's very hard to do. <laughs> and I, I, I want to be clear, I'd be hypocritical if I said I did it every day and did it well. Huh. But as an actor and a writer, one thing I realized early on, and especially things like a first date, uh, first dates where you know you're not going to necessarily be with someone, like there's not a chemistry, it's a wonderful way to sort of, you have two decisions. You can either say like, well, this is awkward and you know, uh, leave, or you can say, you know what, why not have two hours where I can investigate someone else's life, kind of like watching a movie, and really learn about another human's existence. And it's kind of interesting that I may never see them again. I love that. That is so cool. What, what, a, great, what a great way of thinking about interactions. Yeah, because sometimes in life, people might uh, say, oh, I'm going to hang out with this person to see what I can get. You're talking about just being present in the moment. So I, I really love that. Uh, the, the, the next thing would be, what would you say your biggest breakthrough moment in your business life was? I've had a couple of breakthrough moments. One was getting to do a Broadway show. Uh, one was getting to be uh, in a movie called The Thomas Crown Affair, which started off kind of small, but I got a bigger role. And then uh, a big breakthrough was becoming the About.com Guide to Podcasting, because that was sort of a transfer of my creative acting life into my writing slash business life. Mm. And, and, and as busy as you are now, what do you do to stay healthy? To stay healthy these days, uh, I'm in kind of an extreme health place because I did this tracking of my values for my values by design mindset. 
And over the course of three weeks, on a scale of one to 10, I had 10 different areas of my life that I tracked. Physical health was one of the values where every day on a scale of one to 10, at the end of each day, I, I marked about two or three, meaning I realized I hadn't done anything. So after three weeks, the, the basic idea of, of the survey I created was you kind of add together um, uh, all, the, all the actual actions you're taking towards living to a value, and you can see, am I actually living to the values as I said I, I want to? And I realized at the tar- start of the survey, I said physical health was very important to me, like an eight or a nine. And after three weeks, I realized, ah, I'm not doing anything <laughs> to transform my health. So anyway, long story short, now I'm up to about running three or four miles a day. Um, or when I'm at the gym, I'm usually in the gym for about maybe an hour where I do a combination of cardio and weightlifting and, and trying to eat healthier. Yeah. And, and what right now, what three books or authors are you currently reading or following? I just finished a good book called One Night in Winter by a guy named Simon Sebag Montefiore. Uh, it's uh, historical fiction about Stalinist Russia because I love Stalin. Um, I, I always have at least one nonfiction and fiction book. So I have the two that I'm reading right now, one I'm listening to is called Shrinks. The other one is called The Boys in the Boat, which is a New York Times bestseller about the um, uh, Seattle or the Washington rowing team that made it to the 1936 Olympics. Ooh, that sounds like a cool story. Oh, it's fantastic. It's really good. Right now as an entrepreneur, what are you most excited about? I love that people, especially someone like yourself, who's so such an expert in the area, likes the concept of values by design. A lot of times, I'm, I'm so mired in emerging technology to come up with even a term that people kind of get instantly is very exciting, even if they don't get all the different aspects to it. I love the fact that in the midst of my personal concerns about artificial intelligence, my researched or whatever you know concerns as well, this idea of, of helping people track what's most important in their lives, like you're doing with Quantified Self, that's really exciting to me. So Values by Design is probably what I'm most excited about right now. Awesome. And I'll, I'll make sure to link your, your TED Talk as well as the link to your site for Values by Design so people can go ahead and check that out. Um, and then to, just to follow up on the last question, who, who inspires you to, to be the best version of John that you can possibly be? Well, one thing I'm trying to do as of late, knowing that my physical health is something I wanted to improve values-wise, I have been looking into spirituality in the sense of I was raised Christian. I went to school thinking I was going to be a minister. My mom is still a minister in the Methodist Conference. So faith, uh, in particular Jesus, uh, in this case, is very inspiring to me. But by that, I mean a personal relationship where that tends to freak people out when you say that. But what I mean by that is pursuing something where the actions in my life reflect the virtues and values that I believe Christ taught. That, however, also has led me to a guy named Richard Rohr, R-O-H-R, who is a Franciscan monk, uh, does a lot of, a lot of his writing also includes uh, famous Buddhist thinkers, etc. And it's sort of helping me get beyond what's called dualistic thinking, that there's only two solutions to anything. He's very, he's very focused on, What's the larger idea of, of living where mostly what you're doing is trying to love other people as you would have them love you. So it's, it's very much kind of golden rule-esque. Ah, thanks for sharing that, John. You know, I, I want to close up our talk today. It's been so awesome 
to sit here for 45 minutes and chat with you. And I just have two, two last questions and then we'll give some links and some places where people can learn more about you. And this is a, a great question and I had sent it to you before. So hopefully, hopefully we can have some kind of insight into you. Really what I think people want to learn about successful entrepreneurs is what is their why? You know, what is most important to them? And hopefully this question will glean that. So the question is, imagine that you wake up 80 years from now. It's your last day on earth. You just learned that the internet has been compromised and deleted. All of your books, articles, and powerful contributions are gone. From all your life's work and what you've learned, you only have one page of writing to leave behind for the next generation. What would you say? Learn to be comfortable in mystery, quoting my dad. Otherwise, I think you'd just go crazy. Make sure to take a measure of your own life because you're worth it. Put others before yourself. And uh, I have this in the book, but if on my gravestone, my tombstone, I can have John Havens was a great dad, a great husband, and played a killer blues harmonica. I'm pretty set. Yes. <laughs> that was perfect, man. Thank you so much. Um, when is the the new book, Genuine, coming out so that we can link that as well? Oh, thanks. It's uh, maybe out by February, maybe March of next year. And the title probably is now turned into the words uh, genuinely human uh, versus genuine. But it's the same, same idea, same as the subtitle. The content is the same, but we're tweaking the title. Awesome. And, and what's the best way for listeners to learn more or, or reach out to you? They can go to my site, which is johnchavens.com. And that's J-O-H-N-C as in Charles, H-A-V-E-N-S.com. And uh, I'm at John C. Havens on Twitter. Excellent. Well, John, thanks so much for your time today. I know that this is going to be extremely valuable for people that are interested in how wellness can impact their, their lives through technology. And I just want to honor you again for what you're doing for the industry and the space and wish you the best of luck for the rest of 2015. I really appreciate the time and your support. So thanks so much for having me on the show, Josh. Thanks, John. Thanks for listening to the show. Head on over to wellnessforce.com radio for all the links, show notes, and bonus content. If you're interested in changing old habits with new technology, download your free digital health transformation guide at wellnessforce.com slash radio.